Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey everyone, it's Jackie here with a special bonus episode of Who Won the Week with not one, but two special announcements. The first one is that Who Won the Week now exists as a video. But it's not just a steady cam of me sitting in front of a microphone. No, 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 no. It's not that. No. Join me and other Sci-Fi Wire favorites like Anjali Grochet and Brian Silliman as we go through the biggest events of the week and play games with your favorite nerdy celebrities. Today's episode is up now, so go check it out on YouTube by searching for Who Won the Week. But today's episode of the podcast is also out, which you know... Because you're listening to it. That's how knowing things works. You do it and your brain knows it. And that's what knowing is. Anjali got to sit down with actor, D&D aficionado, and star of the new action movie Arch Enemy that's out today, Joe Manganiello. And we wanted to share that interview with you now. You are an avid D&D player, right? Like this is kind of like you have done this for a while and it's a pretty notable kind of difference of the roles that uh, people would assume that you have because you are physicality, you are a very strong, like very much in a lot of our minds, you are still Alcide Herbo, right? Like you are running through, you're the superhero type of dude. How do you feel you've been able to kind of balance your nerd personality, a lot of your roles, and what is your approach in kind of balancing what people expect of you, Um, which I think is what pop culture will always do, and then, you know, what you truly enjoy to do in your work and your life? I don't care what people's expectations of me are, only, only to piss them off and do what they think I'm not going to do. I mean, that would be the only way that would possibly factor in would be to figure out what they want me to do so that I could just completely disappoint them by doing what I want to do. Um, So with that said, I mean, yeah, I understand that there are, you know, preconceived notions about, you know, People, people can only be good at one thing or only be interested in one type of thing and they have to fall into some type of archetype. Um, but that's just not the way it is. It's not the way that the people that I always looked up to um, were. Um, you take somebody like Henry Rollins, for example, who I was very much into growing up. And, you know, he's a scholar. He's an author. He's, a, you know, a really deep writer. Um, he's also like a crazy tattooed up thick necked punk, you know, guy. Um, and I always liked that. I liked that you couldn't put him into a category. Um, and so as far as my size goes, yeah, it meant that I got to have a very different experience in life, but it also means that I think I'm big enough that I don't have natural predators out there. 
you know? So it's like, I'm big enough to do what I want when I want and nobody can really say anything about it. Um, but you know, with that said, like, do I try to have to balance the athletic side or the, the nerd side? No, I, I just, I just do it all. I, I, I do what I want to do when I want to do it. And, and that's it. And when it comes to, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, you know, the, the job that I wanted as a kid, I, I wanted to work for TSR, who was the company that created Dungeons and Dragons. When I was a kid, I wanted to work for the company. I wanted to write games. I wanted to write modules. I wanted to write adventures. So I wound up finding an outlet for that in filmmaking and in producing and in acting. I also, over the past few years, have been fortunate enough to have been able to work that job part-time um, through the company of Dungeons and Dragons. So I think a lot of people say, oh, you know, you're a fan. And it's like, well, I'm an employee. I actually get to, I get to write adventure modules. I've created a bunch of characters and storylines that appear actually in their canon. Um, I have characters that appear in video games and, and on the shelves of, you know, well, toy stores or gaming stores when they were open, um, but uh, are on the internet. So, um, you know, I get to be, um, I get to work that job that I wanted as a kid now, as an adult. You're living your nerd dream, and I love this. Um, and that's actually a great segue to Arch Enemy, right? Because you are one of the producers, and you're in the movie. You know, obviously there are a lot of superhero movies and stories out there today. I have watched many, if not all of them, and you definitely are in a couple yourself. You know. One of the interesting things about Arch Enemy is that you never know where the story is going to go. You know, how do you feel um, being part of the creative process and also being in the, the actual movie that Arch Enemy and subvert is kind of the word, but I think it's kind of not the word. It's kind of just, it tells a very interesting story that's just the story that happens to also involve superheroes. Like if you pull the superheroes out, it's still a really interesting story. Um, how do you feel the movie stands out? And, you know, what was the decision to make it? Well, all of those reasons you were just mentioning um, about, you know, the confusion of it or, you know, the fact is, you know, let's be clear. You don't know if he's a superhero or not. He babbles on and on about some other dimension and in this other dimension he was a champion of the people there and had powers and could fly. You hear him say that but what really attracted me to the script was that it isn't. I mean it's it's not it's not not a superhero movie but it's not a superhero movie and that's what I liked about it. Um, it reminded me of the what if comics back in the day it was another version of, you know, Superman Red Sun. What if he landed in communist Russia instead of the U.S. during the Cold War, even though he landed in 1938, because that's when the first action comics came out, but whatever. Uh, but, you know, I mean, in, in uh, what if, you know, like what Supreme Power did, you know, what if he was raised in a Truman Show atmosphere? In, in our case, it's what if, what if Superman landed on the wrong planet? What if instead of the gravity being lighter so that he could fly here where he couldn't on Krypton and the yellow sun's radiation was somehow less hard or, you know, gave him extra power? What if 
the carcinogens in the atmosphere were harmful to him breathing and he had trouble breathing and was in pain over it. What if um, gravity was super heavy for him and he couldn't fly and his bones and joints felt that pain to the point where he had to drink and do drugs to try to alleviate that pain? What if he couldn't go to a doctor? You know, what if he can't get a job? He has no identification. Like, think about all of that. The guy's homeless, on drugs, trying to keep away that sort of pain from being on the wrong planet. Meanwhile, babbling on and on about how great it was somewhere else. And then that becomes a metaphor for, you know, people that have maybe, you know, gotten off track in life or are stuck in the past and how great the past was, and they're not living in the present, or they're not making the most out of the situation. They haven't accepted that this is these are the cards that life has dealt them. And, and for me, as an actor, that's really what the movie's about. It's not about all the other stuff. It's about this borderline schizophrenic meth addict who lives under a bridge who is somehow stuck in these glory days that may or may not have even existed. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because you don't even know if you're on Earth. Like, you assume that's where you are. Like you assume this is earth prime. Like you assume for depending on what universe you're talking about, you don't know. Yeah. And, and, and that's the beauty. And, and also the challenge of playing a character who doesn't know. He doesn't know. He's not sure what part of his memories are actually functional or which ones were some sort of psychosis. Uh, and, and that, is also led to some really interesting conversations with the director, Adam Egypt Mortimer, who, who I, who I love. I love Adam. I loved working with Adam. And, uh, but we would have these conversations and, um, you know, it was such a unique process because, you know, coming from the school of, of acting that I come from, I need to know everything and the actor should know and have answers to everything. And there just weren't answers to a lot. And so figuring out, figuring out a way to, uh, to actively play that was, uh, was a fun challenge. I love that. So Max Fist, who is the main character who you play, to normal people around him, it, he, and I think you've already kind of hit on it, you know, he is just this guy who is a drunk and tells stories and doesn't have any money. And I think that's such an interesting thing, you know, do you feel like there was part of the role when you stepped into it that you were able to kind of bring yourself to or that, you know, you're now taking with you, you know, after doing, and it's a really, it's a really hard role because he is constantly going through some sort of pain. Yeah. You know, I, I think every role there's, there are shades of it that are familiar to you whether, you know, literally or, or metaphorically that, you know, you understand on an emotional level what, what that's about, you know? Um, and then there are things that you have to go and you have to learn about. And so, you know, I, I met with a man, I was introduced to a man who was homeless for 20 years in Los Angeles. And so sitting down with him and talking to him about what a typical day was and the struggle to, to, to live and hustle and drug addiction on that type of daily level. And, you know, he's sober now. He's been sober a while now and going back to school. And, I mean, this guy is, is a miracle. Uh, but he had enough perspective to walk me through what that was like. And so that's something that definitely informed the story 
and the film and actually, you know, like we were talking about having a, a hand in the producing, it wound up informing, there was a day of shooting that we went out and shot, you know, a day in the life of, of, of Max, my character, um, as, as like set up or, you know, relayed by this gentleman that I met um, and, 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 and kind of, you know, learned from. And then aside from that, you know, there, there's, there's meth, there's meth use, methamphetamine use in the, in the movie. And I had a very, there's a very close friend of mine who had done a lot of meth in a previous lifetime who is sober a long time. And I had him on set. I, I, I actually, you know, kind of talked about the scenes, talked about what was happening. Um, and he like, you know, he kind of went through, you know, he walked me through meth, what it did, you know, what happens, this, is, you know, and, and then I had him on set to, um, you know, make sure that I was on point whenever I, my characters, you know, really hot. Well, okay. So now I have a question and this is just out of sheer curiosity and no spoilers. Does Max Fist actually have any superpowers? Is that question ever answered behind the scenes? I don't, I don't want to spoil it for anybody at the end. There's just this moment where you're just like, I don't know. Well, and that's the question I think I want people to, that I wanted people to have on the way out of the theater and on the way home was having that exact discussion. What just happened? Was he, was he not? What did that mean? What did this mean? You know, and then to go back and see where all those little seeds were planted in the film on a second viewing. So you said you've seen it twice. So, you know, um, I'd be interested to like, see what, oh. you know, what your opinion is at this point. Well, the funny thing is when you get to the end and you find out who the baddie is, you're like, okay, all right. Mm-hmm. That all mm-hmm. just, it, it, cause it'd been laid out in the story. And I think, I think that's such a really neat way because you've had kind of your, your work in superheroes. Like you, you were in Spider-Man, you played Flash Thompson, who is a legacy character for a lot of folks who watch who who read the comics right like flash is now taking on another iteration but like the original old school flash is like a really big deal in the comic books you know how did it feel because it was like that was one of your and you can correct me if i'm wrong that was like one of your first times playing a villain and and probably the worst type of villain like he's a bully like flash he's just a bully well, is he or is he is he a it's cool, also hurting? Is he a cool guy, a cool football player, jock guy, and some nerd is now moving in on his girlfriend? And I mean, wouldn't you beat the guy up if he kept coming after your girlfriend? And you were like, "Hey, man, why don't you uh, leave her alone?" Uh, or we're gonna have to fight, and then it happens. So anyway, it just <laughs> depends on how you look at it. I think that's all. It's all about the messaging and the messenger. I see you. <laughs> This thing, you know, um, I know a lot of football players that were that were mad at Peter Parker. In fact, growing up, I wasn't a Spider-Man fan because of that. Wait, what? Wait, I didn't see him as a bully. I think a bully is, you know, you got to look at the circumstances, you know. Wow. As as a as a lawyer, I am impressed by your argument. <laughs> don't steal my girl. Don't try to steal my girlfriend, man. I told you twice, you know. Oh. Off, Peter man. Parker, Mr. Steal Your Girl. Oh, God. <laughs> if he didn't have superpowers, it wouldn't have happened. Oh, okay. So I got I got to ask now, because eventually Flash Thompson gets his due. I will say it like that. 
mm-hmm. you know, what does it look like when that's flipped on its head and Tommy McGuire has to, like, Tommy <laughs> McGuire has to beat down. <laughs> Wait, Toby or Peter? What are we talking about, right? We say, we do we, well, we up like Logan Paul part two? Is that what we're doing? Right now? <laughs> All right, so let's put it this way. No. So Flash eventually goes down. Your argument is that he's not a bully. Does that make Peter Parker the bully? You know, we'll look at Cobra Kai. I think Cobra Kai explores that exact theme. Actually, well put. <laughs> well put. <laughs> very similar, very similar Cobra Kai to what we're talking about here in Spider-Man. Yeah. So what you're saying is, is there's a lot of gray area. Mm-hmm. Everybody is a bully at some point in time. And you're not necessarily on Peter's side here. That's what I'm hearing. You, I, I wouldn't argue with any of that. <laughs> I love it. And I love the fact that you are so passionate about all of these fandoms and you really truly are a Marvel DC D and D fan. Like you get the characters. This is something that you really understand, but you know, you also played one of my favorite characters, uh, Alcide Hervo. Um, mm-hmm. He's just such a big hearted, yeah. wonderful human being. How often one do people just automatically still associate you with true blood well i think it has to do with where i am and how i look you know when i have my hair a little longer with a beard then people recognize me i think if i'm at airport tsa it's all about true blood uh so it just kind of depends on what my demographic is i think and, and how i look um because you know when i look like this and i walk around nobody even knows that it's me so, um, you know, they're, they're, but, but I think it, it has a lot to do with, um, you know, what my hair is doing, um, what, my, what my hair and beard are, are doing. Definitely. The hair maketh the man. I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, so I got to ask, though, for you, True Blood was another level. Like, it's not, it's not, it came, it came from a book. Like, it was, it wasn't that there wasn't source material. Um, but, how did being a fan of all of these different fandoms kind of, and did it prepare you for playing a werewolf? Well, I think that tapped into the, the young boy, you know, at, at night sitting alone in the living room, watching the old black and white universal monster movies. I I I think that's really what it tapped into more than anything else was, you know, I I always felt sympathy for the monsters. I always, Mm. when I was growing up, you know, I I I was, I was, Darth Vader was my favorite character. I mean, I wanted to be Han Solo, but I also like was obsessed with Darth Vader. I, you know, um, when Legend came out, you know, Tim Curry as, as the devil, I was just obsessed with. And, you know, I, I always, um, I don't know, I want to say I rooted for the monsters or felt some sort of empathy. And the way that True Blood was written, you know, the way the books were written, or I guess what was at the heart of, of, of Alcide was, you know, this, this self-loathing monster who looked at, being a werewolf as a curse to the point where he didn't want to have kids and, and things like that. So for me, it was very easy to feel sympathetic for that character or root for that character or want love for that character. And so um, that then was the seed that I planted in the dirt and watered and put it next to the window still to grow. 
everything that he wanted, he saw in Suki. You know, she was she had powers like him. She could understand him, but she was nice the way that the other you know girl werewolves or Debbie were not. And so that was really, I think, the you know the the place from which the you know that the germinated the heart of the character. And and um, I'm glad that you know people responded to that. That was that was amazing to get to play such a cool character on such a beloved character on, on such a great show. To this day, still the most devastating death. Sorry for everyone else. I literally cut the TV off and was very sad. Um, but I will say that's interesting because it's very much like this Grindel Beowulf misunderstood monster situation where you don't really know the monster side of the story type concept. Um, which, which then like brings me to your role as Burke in Rampage. It was, it was a fun, it was just a fun movie. Like, I feel like, you know, for you, it's, it's fun to just watch a bad guy do bad stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, just, just in that way. So for you, how do you feel like that role fits into the larger scheme of you just having fun being able to play the roles you want to play and then kind of making this path for yourself. Well, did, did you, well, if I'm hearing you correctly, you, you see Burke and rampage as a bad guy. Um, my producers see Burke as, as a bad guy. I'm not going to comment on that. I think Burke and I don't, I think rampage is just a fun movie. I didn't necessarily see him as a bad guy. Okay. Okay. I thought, all right, I was just, you're kind of connecting the dots and was like, oh, how do I like to play a bad guy or blah, blah, blah. But I was like, okay, okay. I mean, um, wait, but do you like playing bad guys? Because I also hear that in your your tone is like, you have this gray area of what is a bad guy. Well, I think there should be. I think those are the good ones. I think, you know, Darth Vader being the most polarized, you know, other than like, some you know movie villain or you know horror like freddy krueger or something or you know the little doll and saw that you're like okay that's like evil personified that's a serial killer that's different you know but but otherwise like if you're not dealing with something that extreme like i i just think that it's all like it it it, it's all in the execution or or it's you know that they're everybody is a shade of something or all characters for the most part are and you know, especially when you get into a backstory, you get into a, an opportunity to show why that person is the way that they are. I think that was such a hesitation about the Joker, was there was such a such a um, outpouring of you know we don't want to see the origin story. We we, we just want him to remain this psychotic anarchist, you know, uh, you know, mass murderer basically. Like you know, we don't want the character to. We don't want to be sympathetic. We want him to stay super evil. Which is really interesting because if you talk to a lot of writers, they will tell you that the best bad guys have a reason. They have a motive. They came from somewhere. There is an origin story. That's, I think that's why we love Lex Luthor, right? Like, um, cause Lex but he Luthor, has to be done right. You know, you have to understand what it is that he's jealous about, what it is that that bothers him about, you know, and then even, you know, even, even Batman versus Superman, you know, the comics are... You, you have to justify why they would, you know, square off against each other, you know, and, and if that's done properly and, and executed right, then you get this whole other side. I mean, it's, you know, Ed Harris and The Rock is a great example. You understand why he wants to launch those missiles. You understand he was betrayed. Like, you get it. 
you know, and that's a wonderfully complicated villain. So what I'll say is that, do I like playing bad guys? Do I like playing good guys? Do I like doing drama? Do I like doing comedy more? You know, it's just, I like interesting parts. And a lot of times the good guy is written very bland. The hero of your story is way less interesting than the amazing characters that are around said main character. And a lot of times the villains are actually way cooler and more interesting. So, you know, I, I'm all about, you know, what's the most interesting role or the most interesting character for me to play? I get, I get bored by bland characters, um, which I was getting offered a lot over the years. It just didn't, wasn't interested in, in, in playing. So that brings us to Deathstroke, because I think I think that's a, a perfect segue to Slade Wilson, who, you know, he's a villain in, in my book. He is a villain, but he's not technically superhuman. He's just like this guy who's like just functioning on his own vibe. He's very smart. I feel like I already kind of know the answer, but it's, it's like, is this idea of having a complicated, having a very interesting, having a very fun, because I think, I also think there's a slight bit of fun of being able to step into these roles that y- you're having, you know, is that something that you feel like was part of your decision to take that role? I think it depends on what part of the story you're telling. You know, you've got, what he's, he came about in 1980, I think was the first appearance, Teen Titans 2. You're talking about years and, you know, many runs by different authors and, and different writers that took the story in different directions. And in some stories, he is super powered and holding a nuclear submarine over his head and throwing it at somebody, or he's got a big, you know, He-Man power of Skull sword, um, you know, but in other stories. Because comic books. Because comic books. Yeah. I mean, and then in other stories, it's more about his relationship with his father and why he's the kind of father to his kids um, because of the relationship that he had with his father takes you inside of that. He's a military man, I mean, which actually exists in real life. So that, you know, it's like when you kind of step into the character. I mean, I remember a lot of the talks that I had early on after, after being initially cast was, was about trying to keep him human. I don't want him to be superpowered because Batman isn't superpowered. Batman is a human with no powers who went through a traumatic experience, lost, you know, loved ones and swore it would never happen again. And then, you know, put on this mask in this suit of armor and went out into the streets um, to try to create a more utopian, happy you know, uh, safe society. And on the flip side of that, you have a guy who went through a traumatic experience, lost a loved one, um, you know, put on a mask, put on a suit and went out and attempted to enact his own agenda. And, you know, maybe get back at the person who killed his, you know, son or or whatever the the storyline is or wherever we're putting the magnifying glass. So I wanted that to be the flip side of the coin. The only difference is, you know, Batman, uses different tactics than Deathstroke. You know, Deathstroke's willing to, to torture. He's willing, willing to kill. He's willing to go further than, than Batman would, which is, you know, very much like a microcosm of, like, you know, law enforcement or U.S. military overseas. So, you know, to me, that was kind of the, the basis of the story, but it all revolved around 
him not being super powered because if he was super powered and Batman wasn't, I think, I think the hot air balloon just drifts away and you lose it. Um, so it was about keeping it grounded to be able to tell that particular story. But, you know, down the line, I mean, you know, there's certainly been storylines with, you know, Deathstroke going after Superman or Wonder Woman. And in which case he would probably have to go to somebody like Alex Luthor and be injected with some sort of serum a la Captain America so that he could compete with uh, the superpowered. So that's interesting because, you know, everyone's going to be listening to this wondering if you're leaving little tidbits because folks. I'm not leaving it. I, I know, you, I, but I have to ask because if I don't ask, someone's going to ask it in the comments. You know, are we going to see some more of Deathstroke's unique and these deep qualities you're kind of talking about in the Snyder Cut? Do you know? That's, that's not for me to talk about. I mean, I, I mean, it's not, I can't talk about what we shot or didn't shoot or any of that. Fair. And I will leave that alone um, because I'm actually a little actually more curious, like talking to you and having this conversation and really getting to know how you approach each of your characters how much research and time do you initially put into bringing these characters to life? Because it, it feels like you know these characters as much as you know yourself. Well, yeah, that's my job. I also come from theater. You know, a lot of times when you're performing the great plays, most of them aren't present day. So there's a huge research component that goes along with them. You know, if you're playing Richard III, then you've got to go study him. You have to study what that time period. I mean, if you're doing Chekhov, you have to study turn of the century Russia. You have to understand the, you know, the, the, the traditions, the styles, the fashion, um, you know, how to make tea out of a samovar. You know, so there's 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 so much work that has to be done. I'm just used to that. And it's one of the things that I really enjoy about acting or drove me towards it is, um, you know, learning about other people and other ways of life. And, um, you know, this path emerges and it, and it just takes you down this path. Um, and and then also, you know, the emotional component of kind of digging into yourself and being able to speak about your life experiences without having to talk about them. So you can reveal deeply personal things um, through characters and, and through performances and um, which, which I find in a certain way cathartic. I mean, it's certainly not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it to entertain other people, but, but there's, there's some sort of catharsis about getting that stuff out and then having people be moved by it and then feeling like you're understood, which is what it's all about. But you know, it all starts with the research, you know, like you never been homeless. You, you got to go figure out what that is, you know. And I think that probably helps you a lot as you're developing out your D&D play as well. I know that a lot of folks are like, how is that related? And I'm like, I watch D&D a lot. And I'm just like the, the people that I, I know who love D&D and who have been lifetime D&D players really just love the story. It's that's that is at the end of the day, what it's really about is like bringing together folks and creating the story with the people around you. Um, and I think that's really cool that you now get to kind of do that. What is the longest D&D campaign you have ever been in? And what is the longest session you've ever played? And why did it take so long? 
I'm just curious. I feel like people want to know this. People will be surprised. I didn't play a ton of D&D as a kid because um, I just didn't have a lot of people who were into D&D at that time who played. Uh, I ran Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I ran, there's a t- there was a tabletop game in the 80s of the Ninja Turtles. So I ran that more than anything else. And that, that then was succeeded by a game within the same rule system called Rifts, which was post-apocalyptic. So we just carried those characters into the post-apocalyptic world. And so I ran those. And that I ran... I mean, geez, I, you know, there, I had a group during the summer on an island that I would run for. Then I had my group at home that I would run for. So it just depended on where I was. I was always running games for kids. And um, those went on and on for, shoot, I mean, years, you know, years and years and years. Um, I'm, my, my group now that I, I run, I run a D&D game on Fridays for, for my friends and uh, when I'm home and not working. That's been going on for a little over three years now. That that current game that we're running. That's impressive. <laughs> I mean, it'll probably go longer. <laughs> I mean, they're not they're close. They're getting close to the end. They're inching close, but I mean we might have another we might have another year left. You know? I love it. You have literally just not you hadn't stopped. I, and I'm really looking forward to a lot of the cool stuff. Is there anything that we should be absolutely looking forward to? Obviously, besides Arch Enemy, uh, which will be coming out, um, that you're really excited for fans to see. Yeah, I mean, you know, we can talk about them when they come out. But for now, Arch Enemy, December 11th, uh, in theaters and VOD, depending on how you want to skin the cat. I love it. Thank you so much for your time. This has been absolutely great. Sure. Thanks a lot. Joe Manganiello's movie, Arch Enemy, is out today, and you should absolutely check it out. So that interview was incredible, but the fun with Joe doesn't end there. Now, remember that super special YouTube version of Who on the Week that I talked about before? You do? Great. Well, there's some of the interview with Joe that we didn't include in this podcast that you can see exclusively in the video. Angelique plays a game with him called Roles Ranked, where she and Joe discuss some of his roles and which they loved the most and maybe which not as much love for them. It's super fun, so go check it out. And now it is time for the second announcement of this podcast episode, which unfortunately is much less exciting than our incredible video premiere. And it is that Who on the Week will be going on a hiatus, so we won't be showing up in your feed for a little while. But please stay subscribed, or if you're not already subscribed, do it now, because you don't want to miss any updates that we publish in the future. And in the meantime, it has been a pleasure being a host of this podcast over the past few months. So, citizens of Earth, both extraterrestrial and interdimensional, farewell for now. <laughs>